From the dawn of time we came, moving silently down through the centuries. No one has ever known we were among you. Until now. We are immortals, struggling to reach the time of the gathering, when the stroke of a sword and the fall of a head will release the power of the quickening. For in the end, there can be only one. Never in the history of film has a series of movies been so betrayed by its own tagline. There can be only one, the memorable poster quote for Highlander runs. Only one. Yeah, right. If we discount the five movie sequels, the six-season TV show, the the spin-off TV show, and the three animated series. That's a lot of mileage from such a closed-off concept. For those that are unaware, Highlander started life as a 1986 movie directed by Russell Mulcahy and starring French actor Christophe Lambert, Scottish clansman Conor MacLeod and Scottish actor Sean Connery as his mentor, the Spanish-named but Egyptian-born Ramirez. Connor was born in 1518 in the Highlands of Scotland. After suffering a mortal wound in battle, he stuns his fellow countrymen by making a full recovery and is cast out from the tribe for being a devil. From Connery, he learns that he is an immortal, destined to live forever and locked in a never-ending war to fight for the prize. The immortals don't actually know what the prize is, only that it will take place at the time of the gathering. An immortal can only be killed by decapitation. Immortals must fight each other, and when one is killed, the victor takes his skill through an elaborate fireworks display called The Quickening. The film follows Connor through the centuries until the time of the gathering, which is present-day New York. Well present day when the film was made, which was 1986. Throughout his life, MacLeod has been stalked by another immortal, the Kurgan, who has his eyes on the prize, and who must be stopped at all costs. The Kurgan takes Connery's head and, is implied, takes Connor's wife Heather as well, making the fight personal. Clancy Brown, who overacts magnificently as the Kurgan, was actually not pleased with how the role turned out, much preferring how it was originally scripted. The Kurgan, as conceived by writer Gregory Wyden, was more of a tragic figure who had been driven mad by his immortality over the years, rather than the punky OTT scenery chewer he became. Wyden envisioned him as a suit-wearing bureaucrat rather than the safety-pin-wearing punk of the movie. Highlander is 80s hokum of the highest order, all flash and glitz thanks to director Mulcahy's background in music videos. But where Highlander resonates is in its tragic characters. Immortality isn't a privilege for these people. It's a burden. They are destined to live their lives as all around them grow old and die, be they family, lovers or friends. The life of an immortal is a sad and lonely one, and to the film's credit, it explores this well. A lot of the themes of Highlander actually come from the music by Queen. Queen didn't score the film like they did with Flash Gordon, but they did provide a number of memorable songs, one of which, Who Wants to Live Forever, perfectly sums up the theme of the film with its title, which funnily enough was derived from the aforementioned Flash Gordon. Brian May, who wrote the song, was inspired to write Who Wants to Live Forever after watching Heather's death scene and said, The hero cannot die, but he falls in love with people who can. He falls in love with this girl in the Highlands. She grows old and he has to say goodbye to her. It's a strange kind of tragedy. I related that to my own life, to everyone's life. 
love always comes to an end. This bleak subtext to the film adds to its emotional appeal, and even through the numerous ridiculous set pieces, beheadings and campy fights, this theme that time is the real bad guy shines through. Highlander was a flop in America, but massive everywhere else in the world, where, despite its complex cutting and extended backstory, it found a loyal and appreciative audience. The US cut of the movie apparently still has some scenes missing, such as Connor rescuing a child named Rachel in World War II, who would go on to be his assistant in the present day. There were also rumours of a US cut of the film being re-edited into chronological order, but I can't find any evidence that this was ever actually produced. The film's success meant one thing. Sequels. This left the producers in a quandary. Highlander has the single most unsequelable ending in film history. Connor won. He achieved the goal, won the prize, and killed all the other immortals. Where do you go from there? As such, best to ignore the two sequels to the original film, 1991's The Quickening and 1994's The Sorcerer, and write them off as a bad dream. The daftest notion for a Highlander sequel came in 1992, when it was announced that it was to receive a spin-off TV show. Even dafter, over time, the TV series would actually exceed the quality of the film series that spawned it. In its earliest development stages, Highlander was to follow Connor and be set in between the cracks of the first movie. Christoph Lambert, now under the name Christopher Lambert, now had an American film career and decided not to return, although he was behind the idea of expanding the backstory. Other actors were therefore looked at to take over the role, with Mark Singer the frontrunner, before it was decided the smarter move was to come up with a different character. This was beneficial in that the actor chosen wouldn't have to bear the weight of comparison, but also the writers wouldn't be hamstruck by having the audience know how it all turns out. As such, Adrian Paul was cast as Duncan MacLeod, a character from the same clan as Connor, coincidentally enough. He was born in 1592 and is also an immortal. What are the odds? Paul was familiar to me from his role in War of the Worlds, where he struck me as a bit wooden. His accent was also odd, always sounded like he was gargling marbles. Over the course of the run, though, Paul developed quite well, handling the drama, comedy and action with aplomb. Highlander the series does not open promisingly. The first episode, The Gathering, establishes that Duncan MacLeod is out of the game, preferring instead to shack up with his hot French antique dealer girlfriend Tessa, played by Alexandra van der Nutt, and have lots and lots of sex. They team up with Jimmy Olsen wannabe Richie, played by Stan Kirsch, and Connor, a cameo by Christopher Lambert, to defeat Quinch, or Quiche, a Poundland version of the Kurgon played by Richard Moll. This forces Duncan back into the game. It's a 45-minute remake of the film, to be honest, and not all that good. However, Highlander quickly developed into something interesting. The TV show format allowed the producers to tell different types of stories, look at different immortals and where they came from, and really delve into what it means to have been alive for 400 years. Story twists occurred rather unexpectedly. In season two, Tessa was killed in a mugging and Richie was revealed to be an immortal, a development that shook the show up considerably. Being partially shot in France also not only gave the show a distinct look, but meant that the series could delve into a wider talent pool of actors than the usual LA-produced shows. Guest stars over the run of the series included a number of pop stars turned actors like Sheena Easton, Roger Daltrey, Martin Kemp, Roland Gift and Joan Jett, but also actors who would go on to have pretty impressive careers like Jason Isaacs, Dougray Scott, Mark Warren, Eric McCormick, Anthony Head, vets like UFO's Ed Bishop and even Rowdy Roddy Piper. 
After a first season that was largely procedural, the producers decided to really embrace the format of the show and dropped the standard done-in-one structure of the day. Events happened that shaped other events in later episodes. Story arcs took place over time. The producers started keeping a tally on where Duncan was at specific times in history. So not only did the continuity line up, but they could develop stories in time periods they'd already visited. The Secret Society of Watchers was added to show that mankind wasn't completely dumb regarding this whole immortal thing, and were even introduced to the oldest immortal alive, the 5,000-year-old Mythos, played by former soldier-soldier actor Peter Wingfield. To the surprise of many, Highlander the series became appointment TV during seasons 3 through 5, where it developed ideas that could only be hinted at in a two-hour movie. Sadly, season 6 couldn't keep it up. Believed by many to be a last-minute addition, Season 6 has episodes that barely feature Duncan, and in some cases, don't feature him at all, rather spending more time trying to set up a lucrative spin-off series that unfortunately crashed and burned after 13 episodes. Further matters interfered with the quality of Season 6, such as the late renewal. With the actors believing Season 5 to be the last, they had moved on to other projects, and scheduling proved difficult. As mentioned, Duncan is missing completely from two episodes, whilst the episode 2 of Hearts features none of the series regulars. The show bowed out with a two-part special To Be and Not To Be, both written by David Tynan and directed by Richard Martin and Dennis Barry, respectively. As with Star Trek The Next Generation, Highlander produced its final TV episodes knowing a new film was on the horizon, now starring the TV cast. As such, it was an ending that didn't really end appropriate i suppose by to be duncan has long got over the death of tessa and is shagging amanda causing the barge on which he lives to rock like there's an earthquake this scene plays out to horrible comedy music that sounds like the theme to inspector gadget how erotic amanda is played by elizabeth grayson who was a miss america in 1982 and has apparently shagged bill clinton but then again who hasn't Amanda is a fellow immortal and was the subject of the spin-off Highlander the Raven. After leaving McLeod to catch a flight, she is captured and kidnapped by dudes with rather suspect Eurotrash accents and even worse Irish ones. Amanda was an interesting character. Originally a foil for Duncan, it quickly became established that they were friends who, being immortal, could go for decades without seeing each other, before falling back into the routine of casual sex and banter, and then split up again for another couple of decades. Neither one was the other's soulmate, but they did share a loyalty and a connection that humans couldn't understand. Amanda was frequently a pain in Duncan's ass, but he tolerated her because of his loyalty. In the TV show, that was the teaser, and here's the credits, but screw that. Here's the full version of Princes of the Universe.
Amanda has been kidnapped by an old acquaintance of Duncan, fellow immortal O'Rourke, who was an Irish terrorist in the 1940s. He bombed a London pub after the war and was caught and sentenced to life in prison, where he stayed with his girlfriend, who also committed the act, because she was not immortal. Once she died, he escaped and is after Duncan because Duncan didn't believe that killing people and holding an old grudge accomplishes anything. Apparently, having not learned anything, O'Rourke then kidnaps Duncan's watcher, Joe. Before we can all say, it's a trap, Duncan and the 5,000-year-old Mythos track down O'Rourke, and Duncan sacrifices himself for Joe and Amanda. No way out, no cloud. You can have me. A cloud! Keep out of it, Joe. My life for Taurus. I'll lay down my sword. You tell him to go to hell! Shut up, Joe! Please! Come on, O'Rourke. What do you think? Blood for blood? And in return? Your sworn oath. On the memory of Tara, that when I'm dead, you let them go. You have it. I want to say goodbye. Put down the sword. dies because of me, Joe. (sighs) 
tell her I love her. Mythos cocks it all up though, and Duncan is gunned down. He falls upon a train that was just here in the sewer, and the train starts moving of its own violation. Honest, this bit didn't really make a lot of sense. After flashbacks over the last six years of programming, Roger Daltrey returns as Fitzhugh, an immortal chum of Duncan, who is in fact dead, and he explains what the hell is going on. Fitz? Is that you? In the flesh, dear boy, so to speak. Good to see you again. But Callus killed you. You're dead. Well, I might say I've seen you looking better yourself. Am I dead? Well, try not to think of yourself as dead. More, um, metabolically challenged. You know, um, handicapped. Come again? Like in golf. Golf? Yes. You're the ball. I'm the ball. Yes, and you're rolling down the fairway. Down the fairway. Now you're getting it. I'm not even close to getting it, Fitz. That's because you're not being the ball. What are you talking about? You've definitely left the tee, but you're not yet on the green. Mm. What? Look, try and follow me on this. A bunch of us were sitting around the 19th hole this morning. What? What? Where? Where? And you know who came in. Ask for me, especially he does. Well, first I was flattered. Thought it was something important, big, you know. Something requiring my special talents. <laughs> right hand of God and all that, you know. <laughs> you're telling me you're an angel? Well, why can't I be an angel? Is there a point to all of this, Fitz? Is there a point to all of this? Yes, is there a point to all of this? Of course there's a bloody point! Of course there's a point to all this and I'm looking right at it. It's you! Me? What about me? Well, forgive me for saying so, McLeod, but it seemed to us up there that you were about to give up your life. It was either my life or theirs. Come on, McLeod. I've seen you get out of many a tight spot that seemed well nigh impossible. What made this one so different? Been a tough few years, has it? Fighting. Fighting, always bloody fighting. Trying to save the world. Yeah, nothing ever changes, does it? Did you really think you'd change the world all by yourself? Fitz, forget about the world. What about Richie? What about Tessa? What about you? If it wasn't for me, you'd still be alive. Come on, McLeod. Come on. There's something I want you to see. 
At this point, the episode turns into a mix of genre show touchstones, A Christmas Carol, and It's a Wonderful Life, as Fitz leads Duncan into the light to show him what life would be like were he never born. It's a nice switch. What feels like a normal episode of Highlander to begin with becomes more magical. Duncan has had a long few years, losing more than he's won, and it's taking his toll. Another one of the themes of Highlander was that being an immortal was a curse. Time marched on for everyone but Duncan, and there is coming a point where he's had enough. Not having a plan when he marched in to rescue Amanda was a symptom of his malaise, ready to give himself up for something that wasn't that difficult a situation. As he said in that clip, many people would be alive if not for him. It's up to Fitz to show him how he's affected the world. Fitz first shows him an Amanda who never met him, a more murderous and manipulative Amanda rather than the thief with the heart of gold. Duncan manages to speak to Amanda, tries to save her husband's life, but the Watchers show up and murder her. Still, Fitz points out, it's only this Amanda that's been bumped off, and takes McLeod to see Joe, who is a down-and-out living rough on the streets. The Watchers apparently kill people now, and Joe is on the outs with them, especially with rogue watcher James Horton, another character from the past who was killed in a previous episode. After learning of Joe's fate, Fitz takes Duncan to see Tessa for the first time since she was killed. In this universe, Tessa never met Duncan, and is therefore alive, well, and married with children. Duncan tries to get close to the married Tessa, but we're on his side, because Tessa's husband is a really stilted actor and completely unself-aware, not noticing that the dark, brooding, charismatic, and unbearably handsome Duncan MacLeod is giving his beautiful, blonde, and delightfully French wife lusty wrong feelings. Duncan goes all arty and sensitive, which always works in TV shows, and Tessa can barely keep her estrogen levels in check. Needless to say, silk-sheeted passion erupts and Duncan and Tessa basically pick up where they left off, pleasuring each other surrounded by nude sculptures. Subtle. Some subtle symbolism, though. Is Duncan really this irresistible? Would Tessa throw her marriage away because of the oh-so-soulful brown eyes of Duncan MacLeod? Fitz tries to paint it as Tessa, merely realising the emptiness of her life, but it still makes Duncan seem a little bit predatory. Granted, this story is about Duncan, not Tessa, but still. Anyway, Duncan leaves Tessa feeling like shit, good job, and finds Methos, who is masquerading as a watcher so as not to be beheaded. Of course, Methos' wife is fridged and he rejoins the four horsemen. This leaves only one semi-regular character left to check up on, Richie. Richie was a commoner garden thief who had no idea what happened to him after he died for the first time, as opposed to our universe where Duncan was able to help him accept his immortality. Mythos found him in this universe and turned him into a proper little killing machine, sending him in to kill Joe. It's quite astounding how even without Duncan in the mix, all these people have still come into each other's orbit. Nevertheless, for whatever reason, Richie can't kill Joe, and so Mythos kills Richie instead, beheading him before McLeod. Needs more sword fights, is my thinking. And more action. Duncan apparently cannot affect the events of this timeline, so he just passively watches and keeps screwing things up. But if he can only passively observe, it's never explained how he can interact with Tessa and Amanda, other than love conquering all. There's also a complete dearth of action until the final scene. Again, in flagrant violation of the rules of the story, Duncan ignores Fitz and takes on Mythos, overpowering him and taking his head. It's up to Fitz to them show him that all these people had no lives whatsoever without Duncan. They were merely empty shells, walking down a self-destructive path. 
Duncan may not have been able to prevent their deaths in the real timeline, but at least while they were alive, he gave them a reason to live. We then return back to the beginning of the story, with Mythos waking Duncan up on the train that was in O'Rourke's sewer system, and he and Mythos decide to take on O'Rourke, leading to Duncan taking O'Rourke's head after the usual clang of broadswords. Bringing us full circle to the start of the show six years ago, Duncan vows never again, seemingly turning his back on the game. Four minutes of flashback set to the strains of Lorena McKennett singing Bonnie Portmore come to this. You know, I don't know who or what you are, Mythos, and I know you don't want to hear this, but you did teach me something. You told me that life's about change, about learning to accept who you are, good or bad. And I thank you for that. Can't imagine my life without you, Meg. Fact is, I don't want to. I love you. I do. Really? Yeah. You make my heart glad. You always have. part finale is an enjoyable part of Highlander history but it's incredibly slow. It also frequently keeps breaking its own storytelling rules. Can Duncan interact with these people that Fitz is showing or can he not? Apparently he can interact with them when it suits the story which I thought was a bit of a cheat. The big problem though is in the final moments which is a massive misfire. Where the hell is Queen in this finale? Where's the big battle that leads to McLeod quitting? O'Rourke is a nobody Duncan takes this kind of immortal's head every other week before breakfast. And if Fitz meant to show McLeod his reason for living, he failed, because Duncan ends up quitting anyway. The final four minutes, though, have been fixed, thankfully, on YouTube by a user called Count Vardulon, where all they had to do was dub Who Wants to Live Forever over the already existing footage. And you know what? It fits perfectly. Like it was always supposed to be there, but for some reason it was edited off and replaced by something else. I can't believe Highlander had problems securing the rights to a Queen song. Still, despite the overall problems with the episode, this montage does manage to show one last time what Highlander the series was all about. Love, loss, and being true to yourself. Not bad themes when you think about it. Like the Immortals themselves, Highlander will not die. After the series ended, Highlander went the Star Trek route, uniting Connor and Duncan for Highlander Endgame in 2000, a box office bomb that, like all the other Highlanders, managed to find an audience on DVD. A director's cut version of the film was then released, and this was received far better than the theatrical version. An anime sequel, The Search for Vengeance, was produced in 2007, as was another live-action sequel, The Source. Sadly, the source didn't even warrant a cinematic release, erring instead as a Sci-Fi Channel original movie to incredibly tepid reviews. Was this finally the end? No, not quite. Adrian Paul has reprised his role in some Big Finish audio dramas and a remake is still being mooted. There can be only one, seems rather fanciful nowadays.
Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And we are returning with emails, which is a sentence that made perfect sense in my head. Uh, Our first episode email, good save there, uh, comes from Daniel Doherty. Bland new day. Good pun. I like that. Hello, Andy. Hello, Daniel. So, brand new day. Hmm. Well, before I get into my thoughts on brand new day, there's a little something I want to get off my chest. Uh Uh-oh. It's always ominous, that, isn't it? In past episodes of Hey Kids, you have made it no secret that you were not a fan of the spider marriage, feeling that the writers of the time didn't know how to write a married Peter Parker. It's very true. I, did, I actually don't think they knew how to write a marriage more than a marriage, uh, more than just a married Peter Parker. I just felt that Mary Jane always got short shrift in the writing of that marriage, and there was a lot of problems as somebody who's been married for nearly 20 years at this point. I think they needed somebody who'd been married writing the strip at that point, well, you know. David McAleaney didn't do a bad job with newlyweds. Uh, Joe Straczynski did a very good job when he was finally allowed to get them back together. James DiMatteis, likewise, did a, a good job. Bernard Mackey sucked. Um, Tom DeFalco, I felt Tom DeFalco wrote them better in, um, in Spider-Girl than he ever did in the main Amazing book. And I wonder why that would be. Maybe just the, the, the setup of Spider-Girl allowed itself for Tom to just write a better version of it. Um, I mean, I've said before, my headcanon for Spider-Man, if we allow for the marriage, is is Spider-Girl. That's, that's, for me, that's where the story goes. You know, after the gathering of the five, the story ended in the way that was depicted in Spider-Girl, not as was depicted in the, in the actual gathering of the five storyline, which was a, a critical and commercial, well, no, I think commercially it was quite successful, but a critical, Creative, sorry, Nadia for Spider-Man, as far as I'm concerned, the, the Byrne Mackey stuff. And I say that as somebody who was a great big fan of John Byrne. Um, but for me, The Gathering of the Five ended as was shown in Spider-Girl, and the Spider-Man Peter Parker story carried on through Spider-Girl, and everything that we've read since Volume 2 of Amazing Spider-Man, when Byrne Mackey took over, everything from that point is an alternate universe. And the the Spider-Girl, the MC2 universe, is the real path that my headcanon 
chose to go down which is probably why i don't get as upset <laughs> sorry the, the tortoise was just climbing up its cage and he just fell over yeah, it's quite funny i suppose i'll have to rescue him in a minute um sorry where was that oh yeah i suppose that's why i'm i'm more accepting of a lot of the stuff that has happened after the marriage dissolution because as far as i'm concerned as far as my head head canon con is concerned that's the the jj abrams universe and um, the prime universe is, is the Tom DeFalco Spider-Girl Well, that's just me. You know, other people have other opinions. Uh, I, on the other hand, speaking of Daniel and those other opinions, am. I do prefer Peter and Mary Jane being together. And I believe that when written well, like the JMS room, a married Spider-Man can work. In fact, as I'm writing this, I'm looking over at my Spidey shelf where I have my Marvel Legends Spider-Man and MJ next to each other. Having said all that, I will, grudgingly, admit that of all the people who have complained about not liking the marriage, you made the best arguments against it that I've ever heard. And while I still haven't changed my mind on the matter, I see your point of view. And while I don't 100% agree with it, I respect your opinion. And damn, that's why we're such reasonable people, isn't it? And that's all I ask. And that's all I uh, expect of others as well. You know, I, I may not agree with you. But if you put your opinion forward reasonably and logically and with passion, I will accept that, you know, you may have a different opinion than me. Not the end of the world if you do. In fact, that's where we meet in the middle. Uh, Dan continues, that's why I wanted to thank you for your recap at the beginning of the episode, where you covered everything up to and including the whole one, may, one more day debacle. At no point did you get on a soapbox and crow over the spider marriage being done away with or anything like that. You called it out for what it was, a horrible story that was poorly executed. More importantly, despite your feelings on the matter, you acknowledge that for a lot of Spider-Man fans, myself included, the marriage was an important part of the strip. And I really appreciated that. Well, thank you very much for that. I do appreciate you saying that you appreciated that. Um, it's like I said, you know, my personal opinion on the matter aside, and I tried to write the intro uh, as neutrally as possible, although my feelings on um, one, one more day uh, seeped through, I think. Spider-Man and Mary Jane, Peter Parker, sorry, and Mary Jane were married for, what, two decades? That's a generation of fans, of readers. Uh, of people that love Spider-Man, that have grown up with that being the show, the strip, the story. You know, the 90s cartoon, which more people probably saw than ever picked up the comics. So were Peter and Mary Jane together in that show. Gwen didn't even exist in that cartoon. So it's kind of folly of me to disregard all those people's opinions. You know, just because it's not my cup of tea, it certainly didn't ruin the book for me. There were certainly some excellent stories, issues, artistic choices after the marriage that I can kind of go, well, this isn't what I would have done, but it doesn't ruin the strip for me. Not in the way that uh, you know, chapter one did. God, chapter one. I actually think all things considered, chapter one may be the greatest scar on the history of Spider-Man ever and that, and that relaunch. Chapter one, ultimately, though, doesn't matter, does it? And so you can kind of let it go, because I think it was retconned out of existence within a year of being published. But, God, it was so very, very bad. Oh. But anyway, yeah, a generation of Spider-Man fans grew up with that being the Spider-Man. Churlish of me to ignore that. Once again, Andy, 
you've hit the nail on the head with regards to Brand New Day. The biggest problem with this run on Spider-Man, and the past 10 years in general, is that post One More Day, Marvel has insisted on portraying Peter Parker as a complete idiotic fuck-up who can't get his shit together to save his life. If removing the marriage was supposed to fix Spider-Man, why is Brand New Day Spidey such a putz? In addition to Spider-Man's backwards progressions is the equally frustrating undoing of many storylines as a result of OMD and BMD. I feel bad for James DeMathis, who's had so many milestones from his time writing Spider-Man to have been rendered null and void. The Aunt May who died in Amazing Spider-Man 400 turned out to be an actress. Harry Osborn didn't really die at the end of Spectacular Spidey 200. Craven's last hunt has suffered the most from this meddling as it doesn't work at all as well if Peter and MG aren't married. And in a future OMD storyline, Craven would be brought back from the dead because everyone was clamouring to see that, I say sarcastically, with eyes that have glazed over. Issues like the one you've just covered only reinforce the fan theory that the real Spider-Man hasn't been seen since the end of Back in Black, or according to my personal headcanon, the strip ended in 1998, and everything from the Burn Mackey reboot onward is an alternate... Damn! I honestly had not read that paragraph when I just said, oh, that's worth him. See, despite the slight hiccup with the marriage, mate, we're on the same side. You know, I'm, I'm down with you. I mean, for me, if I'm being absolutely, totally, brutally honest, if I had to end Spider-Man anywhere in its published history, Amazing Spider-Man 99 would be where I'd end it. Um, despite all the good stuff that comes later. Uh, because to me, that, that ends the strip on a natural high. And you can carry on if you want to. Go and read them. I'm going to cover Amazing Spider-Man 99 on this show. There you go. That's my vow. I will do that after this. I'll do that next. I've got a couple of shows that are half written. Because the way this show works is I'll write stuff and then I'll watch a couple of episodes of whatever it is I'm covering and then go back to what I'm writing and tidying up. And sometimes episodes can, can gestate for a long period. But I'm going to do Amazing Spider-Man 99 next. I'll push everything back a bit and do that. And I'm going to go through that issue and why I think it's a great end point. Thanks, Dan. I love it when my listeners give me a coverage, an issue to cover, a topic. It's brilliant when that happens. Anyway, back to, to Dan's email. I don't know if you plan on covering any more brand new day books for the palace. I'm considering it. I want to look at, at, at um, Big Time and a couple of other things as well. Not everything in the past 10 years has been a waste of space, but I, I do think that is because in my head canon, this is a divergent timeline. This is the this is the J.J. Abrams verse of Star Trek, so I can kind of accept it on its own merit. All I'm going to say is don't force yourself as it feels too difficult to continue with this era. Till Spider-Man swings by the palace again, she is sincerely Dan Doherty. Well, thank you very much for that email, Dan. Um, that was great. I very much enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, only other email we've got tonight is from Jason Trenner. Greetings, greetings, Jason. Just listened to the brand new day app, and man, that was a rough start for Spider-Man. An era that existed as the editor-in-chief of Marvel wished to alter Spider-Man's relationship status. Sorry about that. An era that, dear Lord, don't most people understand Peter's character? Your coverage was great, but the only thing in it that I read from this era was the Roger Stern issue. And only that due to Blank from his West Coast Avengers series showing up. I'm more of an X-Men and Avengers guy. My Spider-Man reading is odd and only when I feel like it. I don't think I really watched Sheena. It seemed to be an interesting enough show. I was shocked by the long history Sheena has and that it keeps coming back. I do remember the Conan show and the 90s cartoon, which I honestly remember enjoying. Keep in mind, it was my first exposure to Conan and I wasn't comparing it to anything else. There's no way in hell CBS was going to do anything risque, but it would be fun to see a Netflix show for Conan go to those places. 
You might want to look at the pilot for Korgoth the Barbaria. Think if Thundar from the 80s was made with no sensors. Uh, as usual, Jason, I had no idea what you were talking about with Korgoth of Barbaria. So I let my Google foo do the talking and I had a look at it. And it was, uh, as you probably know, this was Cartoon Network Adult Swim thing. The video I found contains content from Turner EMEA Entertainment and has blocked it in your country on copyright grounds. So I couldn't watch it. So, Selavy, said the old folk. Goes to show you never can tell, doesn't it? All right, that's about it for this particular episode. I hope you enjoyed my retrospective on the final episode of Highlander, the series. Um, there's a couple of other episodes of Highlander I'd be interested in, in pulling out of the vaults uh, for the show, because I do love that Highlander series, Flaws and Elves. Is there any you want to hear me talk about? Drop me a line, and maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll get around to them one day. Next time, I'm going to do Amazing Spider-Man 99. Thanks, Dan. That was just appeared out of thin air. As usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation. Go by the twotruefreaks.com website. There's a link through Amazon. Click on that. Buy your crap. Nothing too risky because we can look at it. And uh, it throws kickbacks our way. And that's great. Isn't it? Um, that'll do. That'll do. Sorry for this time. You have said what I'll cover next time. And we'll be back with more in the very near future. Everything's going to be fine. Ta-da. Ta-da. <laughs>